This is an ABC podcast. Before we get started, a quick note. There's some salty language in this episode. When I was in the club on our first motorcycle run, we were at a petrol station and one of the older members on the club was on his chopper or whatever and there was a young boy with his mum walking out of the petrol station just looking at the motorcycle in complete awe and just reminded me of being that young boy. Andrew, the bloke on the motorcycle, hopped off his motorcycle, went over to the young boy, asked him if he wanted to sit on the bike, plopped the young boy on the bike and took a photo of him. I just thought, that kid, I hope he doesn't fuck up his life the way I did, you know. I'm Elizabeth Kulas. Welcome to Days Like These. Mahmoud Fazal was once a sergeant-at-arms within the Melbourne chapter of the infamous Mongols Motorcycle Club, pulled to be part of a brotherhood that lives by the motto, respect few, fear none. But membership in this club is a binding contract, and it was one Mahmoud was committed to, until two major events that hit back-to-back would force him to reconsider his role in the club and the course of the rest of his life. You heard the motorcycle club before you saw it. It was this roar of engines just igniting the street. You know, they had these red and yellow patches And they were big Aussie men with big beards and tattoos. It kind of felt like caricatures of evil had kind of come to life in the most bombastic way. It was strange and terrifying, but full of glory in a really fucked up way. I just thought, I love those shiny motorcycles and I thought their vests were really cool. It was like dangerous and free. Maybe I was seeking that camaraderie. Maybe I just wanted to be looked at in the way that these guys got looked at, with complete shock and awe. Well, first and foremost, it was for money. Once you start dipping your toes into that world, you realise that this thing called the reputation has value to you in a different way. At the time, being a bikey was like being the poster child of the criminal world. In the 90s, like, the guys that were older than me were a different school altogether. It was the Melbourne underworld sort of scene where people were in suits and there was class and it was quiet. But my age group was a bit different. It was flashy, it was on the news and it was in your face. When you first go into the car park, it was just bikes and cars and patch members wandering around. Three or four tattered up dudes with earpieces in. And then you walk into the clubhouse and it was like a bunch of dudes of every ethnicity, a few strippers, a lot of booze, fucking cliche rock music. There's a, a room where it's members only room, so there's a bit of mystery. There was a spectacle, there was theater. 
and there was a strange sense of safety, even though each person in that room was probably very dangerous. Mahmoud grew up in a tight-knit family. He's the son of hard-working, upstanding parents. His father fled Afghanistan for Australia after the Soviet invasion. But in these men, these members of the club, he also saw things to admire. They had conviction, obeyed a code of behaviour, and that had its attractions. Being a first-generation migrant, or son of migrants, you, you don't know how to be, you know. You're Afghan at home, you're Australian on the outside. If something gets lost in that friction, and so you're trying to find a strange middle ground. And for me, that world seemed um, like this weird no-man's land that um, had rules that were halfway between a strong, masculine Afghan of the village of warriors and, on the face of it, outlaw culture was that in a very different way. They had very strict rules and ways of behaviour. I found these men impressive. They had very strong ideals that they believed in and they're willing to bleed for. They knew how they wanted to live their life and according to what principles. I think I was looking for structure or something and their model fit my idea of how men should live. You're essentially entering a family, so... You know, you have to prove that you're worthy of their brotherhood. It's not like someone's telling you to, like, take a gun and run it up to Sydney. And it's all just sons of anarchy bullshit. No one's telling you to commit crime, to be honest. Crimes happen, of course. We're not talking about angels, but we're talking about a community that exists outside of the law. So it's kind of anything goes. But that's not coming from the club. The club is there to ride motorcycles. Then again, everything is on a need-to-know basis. If there is sinister shit going on, a lot of people aren't going to know about it because they don't need to know about it. You know, because these guys, when you join the club, they're like fucking mythic. You've only heard stories about them. Crime reports, really. And then you meet them and you have to earn their respect. And they grow to love you. But when you leave, you kind of betray their friendship. You have to deal with that. Loyalty, honesty, respect. These were the core tenets of life in the club. Once you were in, you never left. Not without consequences, anyway. And just as the glamour of his membership began to wear off, Mahmoud's life swiftly changed around him. My grandmother had suffered a stroke. She'd fallen out of her bed. And I'd visited her in hospital... My father, kind of just there with your family in this room, essentially waiting for the person you love to take their final breath. I don't know how to even describe the feeling of when you're in a room full of people that are confronted with a nightmare, you know, seeing their mother, someone that's so kind, has only been full of love, really screaming about the pain and suffering. I really loved my grandma a lot, so I couldn't 
bear to watch it. So I was in the waiting room with my cousins, trying to keep your thoughts busy with whatever the fuck's on the television. Yeah, it's like that funny thing where we know people die, it's the only thing we know, but we act like we don't. At the time, I was very good at not thinking about that, and suddenly I had to deal with it. So I'm sitting in the waiting room, scrolling through Facebook or whatever, and I've got a message saying something's happened at my best friend Paul's house, and I assumed he'd been raided by the police. It's fine. People get raided in that world all the time. Then my phone kept going off. And I picked up. I was screaming on the phone and, um... It's a very strange thing when you hear your friend scream because we're not used to listening to people we love suffer in such a physical way and trying to string sentences together to tell you that this person's died. I remember asking him what had happened, even though he explained it, he'd been shot. And then he kept telling me, fucking yelling it out on the phone and crying. Paul's just died. His parents have found him on the floor of his bedroom with a fucking bullet in his eye. It definitely wasn't a murder. I don't believe it was a suicide, but who knows? He could have been loading the gun, could have misfired. I don't know, man. I don't think about it. He's gone. I'm not going to write some story into it. I've been told the worst possible thing that you could have possibly been told. And I had to just sit in the waiting room and wait for my grandmother to die. Then you just realise that that's what this is, you know? Everything is futile. He's lost his best friend, then his grandmother. One shock right after the other. And it changes him. He knows it's time to rethink everything. For the next few months, I don't know what I did. Just suffered. And then I um, told everyone, like, um, I don't want anything to do with crime. I'm done. Came to realise very quickly that the time we have is actually quite short. And where is all my time gone? what's it gone into and so I decided very quickly that I've got to make the most of of this chance I was very fortunate in that the club took a very sympathetic view to my situation they probably recognised the the damage or something you have to hand back all club gear your vest shirts, all of it. I was fortunate, you know, to kind of walk away. But I also understand the people that would have been pissed off. Because you've enlisted in a family. When you walk away, you're walking away from them. 
It hurts, but you have to cut ties. There's a concept in gang life. Blood in, blood out, they say. It means there's a heavy price to join and an even bigger price to leave. It can even cost you your life. But Mahmoud's loss, it opens up this crack, a little opening that he can slip through. And that's what he does, using his new freedom to go off in search of other parts of himself, like burying himself in his other passion, books. As all this stuff was happening, I was enrolled in an arts degree because I knew there was no future in being an outlaw bikey. I um, decided to study psychology, trying to distract myself from what was going on in my head, you know, reading, studying, just gave me a new purpose. And then slowly I began to realign and reassess what I wanted to do and where I wanted to use my time on. My whole thing was I was, I should have known better. I should have been telling people the right thing to do, not being a fucking symbol of the wrong thing to do in my community, in my area. To be honest, I just wanted to work and keep busy, tell stories that were engaging and would help portray a different version of the criminal world as we know it. Not like a fucking messiah, but I wanted young people to to realise that you're not going to live again, dude. So I wanted to do the best I could to correct all the time that I'd fucked up. I wanted to do everything I could to get a message across that what you think you know about crime is wrong. Cheesy way to say it, but to make amends or redeem or whatever. But you can't redeem something that's already lost, you know. You just hope that people get a reality check. If they stumble across an article that details the reality in a very natural way, trying to get people to believe and absorb the reality of the situation, of your best friend's mother crying and asking you what happened. Thanks to Mahmoud for sharing his story. You can find some of his feature writing online at The Guardian Australia. Next time on Days Like These, a comedian risks it all for love and ends up having an encounter that will change her and provide a lifetime of material. There were, I mean, honestly, alarm bells going off all over the place, in retrospect. But at the time, this guy was charming and funny and had these huge arms that could embrace me in this big, beautiful hug. And I was just living like a queen. And I thought, yeah, you know what's missing here is a king. So let's audition you for the role chair. You can subscribe to Days Like These in the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. If there's a story you want us to hear, please share it. You can send us an email or send a voice memo to dayslikethese at abc.net.au. Days Like These is hosted by me, Elizabeth Koulas. Our lead reporter is Pat Abud. 
Our Season 1 reporting team includes Alex Lowback, Sam Wicks and Monique Bowley. Our researcher is Tamar Cranswick and our digital team includes Andrew Davies and Michael Delaney. Sound design on this episode by Russell Stapleton with thanks to Timothy Nicastri and Stephen Tilly. The supervising producer for this episode was Justine Kelly. Our brilliant executive producers are Ian Walker and Rachel Fountain. Our theme song is Yeah Nah by The Gooch Palms, courtesy of Ratbag Records and BMG. Extra music by Russell Stapleton. See you next time.